Welcome everyone to season two. Before we get into the first episode, I just want to say thank you all for being here, number one. And number two, I am so happy to be back behind the mic. I feel like I've got a stronger sense of purpose and a stronger mission for the Wild Brood podcast. While season two revolves around our shared ocean space, it also focuses on how you, as an everyday individual with a job and a life, can get involved and make real world changes. Let's face it, we can't all be Jane Goodall or David Attenborough but we can be ambassadors no matter what station of life we occupy. We begin season two with the birth of the Roatan Marine Park, and we will continue to explore various aspects of the ocean from deep sea exploration, cold water corals, how to be a scuba diver, sharks and rays, among so many other topics. I cannot wait to share season two with you all. So let's go ahead and get this show on the road. Hello, my conservation friends. This episode is a long time coming. Actually, this entire series is a long time coming. And like Gandalf, my episodes are neither late nor are they early. They arrive precisely when they mean to. At least that's what I'm telling myself. Let's set the scene. Back in November of 2022, I traveled to Roatan with my dive group, but I was going for a singular mission to get certified in coral restoration, to which I did. An episode is soon to follow after this. To give some background, Roatan is the largest of the Bay Islands, comprised of itself, Guanaja, and Utila, and sits right off the coast of Honduras. It's about 50 miles long, 5 miles wide, and topographically, basically just a series of cones that rise out of the Mesoamerican Reef. Does it look like Isla Nublar? Yes. Yes, it absolutely does. Originally, it was home to the Paya Indians, and then Christopher Columbus showed up in 1502, and we all know what happens when Christopher Columbus shows up anywhere. Anyway, it became a hotbed of slavery, a continuous pissing match between the Spanish and British crowns, and a pirate island. Yes. But we aren't here today to talk about pirates or dinosaurs, even though I really do love those topics. On November 10th, I sat down with Jennifer Keck. Hi there, my name is Jennifer Keck. I'm the Education and Research Coordinator at the Roatan Institute for Marine Sciences. To talk about the Roatan Institute of Marine Science and the coral restoration that is going on in the waters Anthony's Key, where I was staying. As we will explore this month, the Mesoamerican Reef, second to the Great Barrier Reef, is in trouble. Big trouble. It was this trip and the conversations and experiences I had there that inspired me to make the Roatan Marine Park my sole benefactor of Wild Brood's profits this year in 2023. And before I get too wordy and basically summarize the entire interview in the intro, let's go ahead and dive in. And we begin with probably the most important question of them all. Why are coral reefs important? And specifically, why are they important to Roatan? Well, if we just focus on why they're important here in Roatan, the big thing is economy and tourism. So I would say that probably 60 to 70% of the locals here um, derive some type of income from reef-related activities, whether they are directly involved with the diving industry, so they're dive masters or boat captains, or they run dive shops, to the maybe indirect spillover, which is all of the hotels and the resorts and the transportation service and the restaurants and the bars. So they estimate that about one to two million people visit the Bay Islands every year and many of them engage in some kind of water activity while they're here. So incredibly important because of the economy, but also because of the food resources off of the reef as well. So many of the islanders fish 
for um, their meals and they may provide for their family and if they get surplus then they may sell it locally within their communities as well. We don't really have any commercial fisheries directly on the reefs here in Roatan but locally um, important food source. So when I say there's no commercial fishing here what I mean is that we do have a commercial in fish industry but the boats go off to other locations. So um, we do have shrimp boats and lobster boats and conch boats, but actually on the reefs directly adjacent to Roatan, you aren't gonna find commercial fishing. So what would you say the biggest threats to the Roatan and Mesoamerican reef are right now? Uh, well, there's the big global issue of uh, ocean warming, um, but locally, the biggest threats, I would say, are probably runoff, sedimentation, and eutrophication or excessive nutrients. Um, this island is building up. Development is at an all-time high, and so the impact of that is, you know, you have a lot of runoff when it rains, and the more people moving here, you have more um, nutrients that are being introduced into the water as well. We're a very hilly island. Um, about 95% of the island is at an incline. Only about 5% of the island is considered flat, which means when it rains, there's only one place for all of that runoff and whatever that runoff might be carrying to go and it's into the ocean. Marine Park is not a law enforcing um, agency. It can make recommendations. It's called in during, um, you know, for mitigation, and not mitigation, but um, environmental impact assessments which are then given to the permitting uh, operations. Honduras, Honduras actually has really good environmental law. Probably the biggest challenge here is implementation and things happening according to the law. Sometimes we get some things that people do try to under the radar, so. <laughs> Sneaky. Sneaky, exactly. Uh. So is the coral that you are caretaking here at the Roatan Institute of Marine Science part of the Roatan Marine Park or? I'm actually on the board of directors of the RMP. Um, I've been working here on Roatan for 25 years. So I'm one of the founding uh, members of the, the Roatan Marine Park. So I've seen it grow. I've seen the trials and tribulations yeah. that it's gone through. I'm very proud of what it's accomplished. It's an incredibly transparent and well-recognized uh, operation. So we started our coral restoration program here in 2016. Um, so our restoration program has been going on for a little bit longer than the Ro uh, Roatan Marine Parks, but we are basically doing the exact same thing, but in different locations. Um, and the Roatan Marine Park is actually, their new office is right here on the property of Anthony's Key Resort. So the owner of the resort, Julio Galindo, has been incredibly active through the resort's history of uh, um, you know, caring about the ocean and wanting to make sure that Roatan is able to preserve its natural resources. So he actually founded the Institute for Marine Sciences where I work in 1989. So we've been in operation for several decades now. So you know, his livelihood depends on that reef. And so he donated um, some land at the very far west end of our property and the Marine Park now has their new office there and they also have their new coral restoration and interpretation center. So we do work closely with them and um, our, our restoration programs are very similar.
Let's talk about the birth of the Roatan Marine Park then. What was it like to be there at the very beginning? So the first officially recognized marine protected area in Roatan was called the Sandy Bay Preserve or Reserve. And that was actually founded in 1989. And it was founded because of Julio Galindo, the owner of the resort, and several other local gentlemen, gentlemen and the community of Sandy Bay, which is right where we're located. They all started to see some decline on the reef and they wanted to protect the reef and its resources directly offshore. And so they were able to go to the municipal um, government, which then went to the national government, and they were able to have this 13-kilometer area of reef um, designated as a marine protected area. And a few years later, the communities of West End and West Bay said, hey, we'd like to be part of this marine reserve. And so it was extended around to accommodate, I think, about um, 13 kilometers in total at the, at the end. And it was run by BICA, the Bay Islands Conservation Association, for a while. And unfortunately, they are a great organization, but they lost some of their funding and they weren't able to manage it effectively. And we started to see some pressures on the reef, especially in, in, in the form of fishing. And so Julio Galindo, the owner of Anthony's Key, got all of the dive shops together and said, hey, we need to do something and we can't wait around for the government to come in because we've seen that that's not gonna happen. So how are we gonna protect our livelihoods? And he got all of the dive shops to actually pledge a monthly monetary amount to pay for a boat, pay for the, the patrolling effort. So really, ultimately, the Marine Park was reborn just as a patrol effort. Mm -hmm. And then slowly we were able to raise enough money to get full-time staff. And then we found a pretty ingenious way to support the organization, which was to ask all the dive shops not only to continue to contribute their own money, but to ask their divers if they would be willing to contribute a voluntary donation. And it was very small, it's $10, and that donation gives you a, a wristband or a dive tag and it's good for a year. And so we change the color every year. So it provides incentive when people return. And most of the dive shops were all in favor of this and it was sort of reward the good, ignore the bad. And so, you know, they got a lot of press and that money, it has to be voluntary because if it was considered to be a user fee or a tax, it would go back to the central government and the chances of it coming back directly to the marine park to do good was very slim. So we had to make it voluntary. And what we found is everybody was very willing. Yes, I want to continue to come and see this reef. I, I love this reef. And so the money that we raised from these voluntary contributions enabled the marine park to grow over the years into the operation it is today and now we have this incredible patrol effort we have an education program we have the coral restoration program we have a research component we have a protect our pride component which actually trains locals to become dive masters and eventually some of them will go on to become instructors and this is incredibly successful job for an islander to have especially when they're sometimes limited with education so it's really grown into a, a organization that I'm, I'm proud of and now not only do we have the 
local community support, but we now have this international collaboration, so we get a lot of organizations like uh, Coral Reef Alliance, Healthy Reefs Initiative, that are able to channel grant money to us to help with some of these projects because we are so successful at getting those projects done. And the restoration program is one of them, and that was a really exciting program because now the Marine Park is able to help the reef but it also allows the dive shops that have been supporting it for years to offer these programs to their guests and use citizen scientists to to help fund and and you know run the program which yeah. i think you actually took a class on i loved that class and it was absolutely exhausting i knew that citizen science work was very hard work but i did not realize how hard it was and honestly the worst part of it was breaking the number one rule of any dive, and that is don't touch the coral, because you're out there literally snapping coral in half. That was the <laughs> hardest rule for me to overcome when I started the restoration program here, which involves fragmenting corals, and I've taught my students for 30 years, don't touch the corals, don't stand on corals, don't swipe a, you know, <laughs> equipment against them, and now I'm breaking them. So I was doing a lot of apologizing to the corals at the start of our program. We were both literally on the boat talking to the corals, I'm so sorry. Yes, exactly, so sorry. Many, <laughs> many apologies to the corals. And through RIMS, you've actually made it really accessible for young students and others who are studying this field to come and actually be an active part of coral restoration. Would you care to elaborate on that? So I moved here in 1997, so I've been the education and research coordinator here for almost, well, over 25 years now. And we work with about 25 to 30 university groups and some high school groups a year. Many of them come from the US and Canada and some from Europe. And they take part in a field course. So it can last from one to three weeks. And they learn about the coral reefs and they get college credit. And many of those students over the years have had such a life-changing experience in this field course that they've asked me if there's a way to come back and get more information. And so um, in 2016, the same year that we started our restoration program, I got the go ahead to start an internship program. And it's a month long and it's open to um, upper level undergraduate students and recent graduate students, although we always make exceptions. Mm -hmm. um, and they come for a month and it's very hands-on intense um, exposure to the restoration to monitoring um, methodology and then they actually get to design and implement their own independent research projects that culminates with a presentation at the end awesome. and we take about 12 interns a year anyone's interested Listening to you talk about it, it's very clear that this program has given you a lot of personal fulfillment over the years. What would you consider your favorite or biggest success of this intern program? Obviously, you know, the success of our restoration program is tied to the student groups that come down because they are a big part of the volunteer and the uh, work in the citizen scientists um, behind that. But um, the success that I see is getting emails mm -hmm. and messages from past interns who have gone on to grad school and just hearing what they're doing now as far as careers 
And one example that I'm incredibly um, proud of is that one of my interns from two summers ago went on to apply for a Fulbright scholarship and she was accepted into the program and she's down here now again for a year working with the Roatan Marine Park um, uh, because she just is so passionate about the ocean and and these reefs here uh, specifically, they became near and dear to her heart and now she's working here for a year. So that was incredibly rewarding for me. I definitely experienced firsthand how much hard work and passion goes into caring for these coral nurseries. And the nursery that I was in yesterday had staghorn and elkhorn coral. Are you also growing staghorn and elkhorn coral? So we are also working with staghorn and elkhorn coral. They are two branching corals. We have three very important branching corals in the Caribbean, and these are probably the two most important ones. They used to dominate the shallow four reefs of Caribbean reefs. So if you are a diver who has been diving for more than 30 years, then you probably remember a time in the Caribbean where these corals were just forests in the shallow. Uh, areas of the reef and unfortunately a disease in the 70s and 80s wiped about 95% of the population of these two corals uh, off of Caribbean reefs. They were put on the Endangered Species Act uh, in, uh, in the US and so the efforts began with these two species because of several attributes. One, they grow very fast. They're some of the fastest growing corals in our reefs, they can grow, the staghorn can grow about 20 centimeters a year. Most corals grow maybe a couple millimeters to a centimeter. Um, they actually reproduce asexually by fragmentation. So if a storm comes along and breaks the branches of these corals off and they tumble around and they land somewhere suitable, they, because of their quick growth, will rapidly cement to the new structure, substrate and grow into a new coral. So really when we fragment these corals and bring them into our nursery, we're really helping with um, the asexual reproduction that they're capable of. And, um, but we're really excited, and you may have learned this um, during your course, that the Marine Park as well, we're gearing up starting next year to work with some of the more massive corals, which are the star corals and the brain corals. Yes, we um, are going to be using a, a technique called microfragmentation. Um, these corals are impossible to break out on, on the reef. They're these big, massive, boulder-type corals. But using technology that you wouldn't think uh, you'd ever hear used um, with corals, um, band saws, we can actually um, saw these corals into very small, tiny microfragments, which we can attach to um, ceramic or cement structures and they grow very very quickly when they have been microfragmented. There's something about them getting cut at that small size that just basically initiates rapid growth and they'll grow about 25 to 40 times faster than they would uh, in nature. So something that might take four years to reach the size of a quarter can grow now about that same size in maybe six months. That's bananas. So yes, we're really excited about that technology. So if these particular branching corals reproduce asexually, do you have the capability to gene sequence them to make sure that the corals in your nursery maintain that genetic diversity so that if, say, another coral plague swept through, it would not wipe out all of the corals? Or are you just letting nature take its course? 
So we actually just this last summer got um, the chance to have our corals genotyped. We, well, a woman named Jordan Sims, who is in a PhD program at George Mason University, was able to secure some grant money to come down here and take tissue samples of not only our corals in our nursery, but the marine parks as well. So we're still waiting for the results of that, but we will really find out how much genetic diversity we have in our nursery and how much they have, which is incredibly important because coral restoration programs would, um, would not be effective if you don't factor in the importance of genetic diversity. So you can't just go out and grow one genotype or, or um, of a species because you're basically growing a monoculture and, and there's so much diversity out there, we need to try to maintain that as much as possible. So, um, so we're gonna find out the results of that and then we'll, we'll be able to know if we need to try to gather more genetic diversity. Right now, because of the fact that these corals are endangered, um, you can't, trade um, from one region to another. So we have to currently work with the corals that can be found in Honduras, but we probably in the future may be uh, able to trade some of our genetic diversity with uh, some of the staghorn and elkhorn coral genotypes that we're seeing in Utila and Guanaja and maybe in, over in Cayos Cachinos or even Trujillo. According to the Divers Alert Network, only 1.1% of the American population participated in scuba diving in 2014, which given the vastness of population in the world, that is an exceptionally small number. And it's really easy to communicate with divers and other lovers of the ocean why corals are so important. But for most people, they will never see a coral reef in real life. So when somebody asks, why should I care about the corals? What do you tell them? You may not realize it, but everybody is touched somehow by the importance of a coral reef. Rainforests, you may never see a rainforest, you may never live near one. Um, coral reefs cover 0.2% of the world's oceans. We're talking about an area of about 250,000 square miles. Um, and that number is getting smaller and smaller every year. But within that tiny percent of our oceans is the most biologically diverse ecosystem. 33%, um, a third of all marine fish are found on coral reefs. A quarter of all marine species, um, you know, invertebrates um, are, are found associated with coral reefs. And that means most of the fisheries that we're dependent on are coming from coral reefs. So when you go to the grocery store and you buy shrimp and you buy crab and you buy grouper or snapper, they're coming from, from reef ecosystems. So millions of people are directly dependent on the resources from reefs, um, whether they're living directly offshore of it or in the middle of a landlocked state that doesn't even see the ocean. So that's what I would say directly you're impacted by. So those prices are going up. I've seen what's happening because it's harder and harder to get them because these fisheries are, are, are being stressed. Another importance that you may not realize is that, you know, many of the drugs that we use today 
have traditionally come from terrestrial ecosystems, but now we've realized that the ocean is this vast, uh, untapped treasure chest of potential biomedical and pharmaceutical compounds. And because coral reefs are the most biologically diverse ecosystem, this is a place we should be starting to look. And in fact, we've already found compounds that have been derived from organisms on coral reefs that treat asthma and other cardiovascular diseases, leukemia and other types of cancers. And there, um, you know, the calcium carbonate that is produced by corals is so pure that it's used in bone marrow transplants. So it's, the discoveries have been made. There's more to be made. We just need to preserve these incredibly important ecosystems. And then there's just this, this aesthetic value of them. They're just incredibly beautiful uh, ecosystems and they're in trouble. Um, and that's one of the reasons why we started our coral restoration program. It's, it's um, trying to slow down this, um, you know, sort of race towards extinction really that's happening. We're trying to preserve the genetic diversity until we can solve some of the really bigger problems that are causing the decline that we're seeing on coral reefs. So how can someone, maybe someone who will never ever see a coral reef in their entire life, how can they get involved and help save these corals from extinction? I, the biggest thing is to get involved in local politics. You know, every um, stream leads to a river that leads to a larger waterway that eventually goes into the ocean. So whatever kind of pollution that you may be seeing locally, may eventually make its way out in the ocean. So get involved, change laws. Um, also try to reduce your footprint. Um, you know, we hear this all the time, but you know, single use plastic should be, you know, abolished. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, we're doing a really, there's really, really great efforts here at the resort to become more environmentally conscious. You, you don't see single use plastics anywhere. Um, no straws. We have um, the largest solar system for any small private business in Central America. Wow. They're just they're just doing a lot of really good things here at the resort. You know, everybody just needs to try to do their own little yeah. part. I want to say thank you again so much for taking time out of your morning to sit down and chat with me. Is there anything else that you would like to add before we close up this episode? I would say if you're listening to this in Idaho, <laughs> Idaho, uh, or anywhere that you're listening to it, come and visit a coral reef. Your mind will be blown. And I think once you're exposed to something so amazing, it is going to be harder for you not to be involved and passionate in its protection because it just really is another world. It's true. Once you see coral in the wild, you will never be able to look at the ocean the same way again. What was once a flat expanse of nothingness will transform into a ceiling for one of the world's wonders. If you can't make it to a tropical destination, you can check out the Ocean Agency's collaboration with Google Maps and take a remote dive into some of the world's most precious coral reefs. You can also visit theoceanagency.org, that is theoceanagency.org, to see some gorgeous, vibrant photos of coral from all over the globe. I will put a link in my show notes. If you want to see what's going on in Roatan, I have a video of my dive with Jen to her nursery available on my website, along with some photos of the Roatan reef system. I have also included a link in the show notes to the Roatan Institute for Marine Sciences webpage if you are interested in learning more or applying for an internship. 
If you want to take it to the next step, stay tuned for episode three, where I interview a scuba dive master on how you can get started in the amazing world of scuba diving. Next week, I spend some time with my personal dive master and Roatan Marine Park Coral Restoration team member, Jennifer Papayanopoulos, about the major threats coral face and how she tends to the Roatan Marine Park's nursery. Stay tuned and see you very soon.